0: Welcome to the first Hitchhiker's Guide to Scottish Literature Podcast of 2018. Woo! I'm Vicky Riley. And I'm Christian Kerr. And it seems right that as we're being battered by the, the beast from the East that we choose um, with this podcast to have a look at a couple of books that sees the readers in more exotic in a more exotic climate. Um, a little bit warmer <laughs> yes. than it is at the moment. <laughs> also, so,
1: <laughs> scavenging <laughs> yeah. for food.
0: Though there was bread and milk in my local Tesco's today. Anyway, so we are being cast away um, this month when, with a novel considered to be the very first novel in the English language and the prototype of the castaway story, Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe.
1: Absolutely. And as it's 2018 and Muriel Sparks' centenary year, we will later on be speaking to Candia McWilliam, who is a brilliant novelist in her own right. Uh, But she is also the introducer to Muriel Sparks' second novel, Robinson, uh, in the centenary edition of Muriel Sparks' novels, which Mm. we are publishing this year at Polygon. (laughs) And... um, We'll be talking to her about uh, what Muriel Spark might be doing in rewriting uh, the Robinson Crusoe story. Yes.
0: So, Daniel Defoe. um, Scottish? No. (laughs) So why are we including him in our Hitchhiker's Guide to um, Scottish Literature? Well, the novel Robinson Crusoe itself has very much uh, a Scottish link and Daniel Defoe himself in his life does have strong Scottish links. It's
1: such a foundational British novel, foundational um, in terms of the novel going forward uh, into the 18th century.
0: So we'll start with the author first, we'll start with Daniel Defoe and um, it, could, it was safe to say that he led a bit of a life himself, you know, somebody could write a novel about his life.
1: The Adventures of Daniel Defoe, Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so he was born into a wealthy family in London in 1660 uh, in his childhood, witnessing the great plague and the great fire of London. And he was also born into a family of religious non-conformists um, of the more Puritan nature. And, uh, and in fact, this schooling led him to even train for the Presbyterian ministry at one point. Um, and it's no coincidence that... Um, at this point as well. It was a time of political and religious turmoil. It was just after the the restoration of the the Stuart monarchy after the civil war and issues of religious tolerance were were paramount in the the political struggles of the time. And it's safe to say that um, Daniel Defoe wasn't a fan of the Stuarts (laughs) and particularly of their religious standpoint where they were much more inclined to um, be sympathetic to Catholicism and very much less um, interested in the kind of Puritan uh, Protestantism Mm -hmm. that Defoe followed.
1: Yeah, the second half of the 17th century, there's just so much oscillation, monarch by monarch, as to who was Protestant and who was Catholic and who was... where the line of succession would go, and it was very anxious-making. So questions of religious tolerance were really important.
0: Yeah. So after the succession of James II, um, Defoe actually took part in in the Monmouth Rebellion against James II. But funnily enough, even though the rebellion was defeated and a lot of the rebels were executed, Defoe managed to escape execution, um, and then in 1688, there was the Glorious Revolution and the crowning of William of Orange, um, who was a lot more uh, sympathetic to um, the religious the religion of Defoe. And it was then that we saw Defoe really coming into his own as a trader. And he made a ton of money <laughs> <laughs> in trading lots of goods, uh, tobacco, timber, wines and spirits. And my favourite hosiery. (laughs) (laughs)
1: It's (laughs) nylon.
0: Does that mean woolen stockings? Yeah well it can't be nylon because that was 20th century. Indeed yeah. (laughs) Though his fortunes were up and down and he was declared bankrupt a couple of times in his life as well.
1: Yeah and um, that's one of the things that uh, you know a hundred years later when Walter Scott is writing a biography of Britain's first novelist, mm-hmm. uh, he really is talking about how uh there was such vagaries of fortune yeah. in Defoe's life and that he really did write from prison and from, yeah. from nothing
0: Yeah, because it, well because af, after William of Orange there was Queen Anne and again Defoe fell out of favour with the establishment and he was in fact imprisoned and pilloried for writing a pamphlet against uh, Queen Anne
1: Yeah, literally pilloried <laughs> I <know>. not
0: metaphorically <laughs> rotten tomatoes <laughs> And then there's this this very shady part of his life where um, he was recruited as a political agent and sent to Scotland, ding, 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 Scottish Mm -hmm. Link, um, to uh, propagandise about the cause of the political union between... England and Scotland, and he was cl- also closely involved in the negotiations on the Act of Union in seventeen o seven. Now we're not quite sure how much of a spy he was at this point. Um, uh, there's there's a, a little bit of a, an unknown quantity there, yeah. but it's um,
1: and he was said, but he was certainly there to observe, yeah, yeah, and report upon things,
0: yeah, uh huh,
1: and um, but we're not like,
0: sure how much of the of black ops there were, (laughs) (laughs) if he was doing anything sort of James Bond-esque or anything like that. (laughs) Right, and in
1: 1709, Mm. he publishes a history of the union between England and Scotland, and I sort of assume that that's a sort of journalistic history, Mm. kind of slightly retrospect.
0: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and he was also a sort of... um, He was sent up to Scotland to quell any unease about the religion of the the crown at that time as well because, obviously, the Church of Scotland was very different to the Church of England at that time. So he was very much involved in sort of quelling any unease there. And so he continues to be a sort of political pamphleteer and mouthpiece, really. Um, But at this point, after the union, he was... He, you would see uh, um, an essay from him just as much in a Tory magazine as there was in a Whig magazine. Um, and it was this point where he would normally... He would get accused of being a bit of a... Maybe maybe quite like a hack. like he... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, he's being a professional journalist yeah. at this point. You know, the 18th century is really... The patronage system has yeah. broken down and you've got... Journalism and The Spectator mm. and Tatler and what have you all yeah. starting up. So, uh, you know, Grub Street <laughs> is beginning.
0: But people, like, he was quite often accused of being both a fanatic and a incendiary... I think, I don't know if he was... A, a, a stirrer. Yeah. 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 He just wanted to stir the pot. And so maybe sort of makes you think where his real political allegiance and where his real beliefs lay because he was quite willing to To argue the toss on both sides. And he
1: would be, yeah, pragmatic as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems that he has sort of slithered through the gaps. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: As lucky as Robinson Crusoe in that respect.
1: And uh, one of my favourite things about his biography and his career, uh, I have a soft spot for novelists that start late in life. Yes. Uh, He published his first novel, Robinson Crusoe.
0: Yeah, that was his first novel.
1: When he was 60 years old. Yeah. It's never too late. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like Muriel Spark. Yeah. Um, who was not 60, but no. <laughs> 30, 39. 39, yeah. Uh, and Walter Scott, uh, who similarly, Waverley, you know, was in many ways like Robinson Crusoe in being just like sensationally popular uh. as a sort of debut novel from a, a writer, Mm. who was, you know, known yeah. and published beforehand. Um I really like the parallels between their careers. Yeah. But no more about that.
0: <laughs> so Robinson Crusoe, as Christian said, was hugely popular on publication. Mainly with the readers though, just with the general public. Um, it was not critically acclaimed. And I think that the the reason was because of his um political pamphleteering and his reputation amongst other writers, Mm -hmm. Um, he was often satirised as well Um, so that's the the life up until Robinson Crusoe, so we'll start we'll get on to Robinson Crusoe now Um, it can be read in in many ways Um, but um, it's largely thought to be inspired by the life of real life castaway Alexander Selkirk ding ding ding, Mm -hmm. next Scottish link (laughs) Who was himself a real life castaway? Um, uh, he was marooned on a, an island in the Pacific, and he when he once he was rescued and, and brought back, he wrote an account of of his time on that island. So it's very much considered that Robinson Crusoe was uh, inspired by this account from Alexander Selkirk. And funnily enough, um, even though uh, Alexander Selkirk, you know, set off from Fife. When you go to Lower Largo in Fife um, well, I, or as far as I, I, I can see the last time I was there I didn't see very many uh, statues or anything to Alexander Selkirk but I saw loads on Robinson Crusoe <laughs> which is great <laughs> yeah. so if you go to Lower Largo and Fife you have this little enclave of big Robinson Crusoe appreciation which I would highly recommend you do go to Lower Largo in Fife as well because the East Nook is lovely <laughs>
1: Yeah, and Alexand- I think Alexander Selkirk was a celebrity. Uh, you know, his story caught fire mm, and caught mm. their interest. His story was reported in Woods Rogers' account of A Voyage. Oh, right. And that was a phenomenal bestseller. Right. So even though Robinson Crusoe is like one of the first novels yeah. in English, these non-fiction accounts... Of voyages across the globe yeah. were tremendously popular, yeah. and um, one of the, one of the things that Defoe says in the preface to the novel is to say that it's not fiction, <laughs> yeah. um, and in fact, it's a, a history.
0: I know he's it's very he's very much um, trying to make this seem as if it's true and and stick to the facts like yes. like um Robinson and Muriel Sparks Robinson anyway to Robinson Crusoe um so it can be read in very many ways um if Daniel Defoe himself tried to portray it as a true story which was obviously not the case it could also be read as a pure adventure story um a study of uh, a solitary consciousness um or a tale of sin redemption um a study on the myth of economic individualism, materialism, or an allegory on political defeat, because at the time there was a school of thought that the period that Robinson Crusoe was actually marooned on his island is also the period where the Stuart monarchy, Daniel Defoe's favourite, were back on the throne.
1: Yeah, and so... The response is to a sort escape. Of
0: exile, yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> or a or prophes- that all the good energy, all yeah. the good energy, for is displaced out of the country
0: mm-hmm. um, onto yeah. And, yeah, or also as a prophecy on imperial expansion, and uh, you know the dangers of that or the opportunities of that. Again, you don't really know which side, Robinson Crusoe or Daniel Defoe. Stands on while you're reading um, Robinson Crusoe because there's a lot of oscillation in Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> yes,
1: well, a lot of sort of reflection, action, and then reflection, and yeah, processing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so does it work as an adventure story? What do you think, Christian?
1: Well, I would not call it a thriller <laughs> in the way that we think of, you know, page turners.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: these days. However, as I do, I do think that as a sort of mental exercise, mm. yeah, it's a cracking adventure. <laughs>
0: yeah. Because <laughs> a lot happens. Exactly. You know, it's a book that we think we know before we read it. Yes. Because like books like um, Jekyll and Hyde or Dracula or whatever, um, it's, it's seeped into just cultural consciousness yep. rather than just as a book you know Robinson Crusoe Man Friday all these things are are part of our cultural knowledge like that yeah. we're just born with so we think that we know what's going to happen in Robinson Crusoe what and what I found was that god it took a long time to get to the bits that i was expecting <laughs> you know i was expecting all of it to 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 take place on the island i was expecting man friday to be in it a lot longer than he than he mm. was. But there's a whole life story before he even gets to the island where we discover that he is, um, from a very young age, he's determined to be a, a seafarer and he goes against his dad to, to, to become a, a sailor. And so he's very, I mean, warning signs, his very first voyage... Sees him shipwrecked off the coast of England, yeah. obviously survives. Doesn't deter there's,
1: him. <laughs> there's an awful lot of foreshadowing, yeah, isn't there? Yeah. Um and a sort of sense that his parents are saying, you know, if you strike out
0: Yeah, if you strike out from your station in life. Will happen. Yeah, uh-huh. And then he goes on a second um seafaring adventure and gets kidnapped by pirates and enslaved in Morocco. Yep. <laughs> which I wasn't expecting. And uh, he escapes, and then he gets on another um, ship to Brazil, where he becomes this plantation owner for a while. Yeah. And then the the fateful journey that actually sees him stranded on the island is when he decides... To
1: participate in a slaving scheme.
0: Yes. uh And
1: in fact, one that is um, not legal. Yeah. A
0: private slaving scheme. Yeah. So while he sails away to, to try and find his slaves... That's when he's shipwrecked on the island. And then you get a whole lot of, of um, Robinson Crusoe on his own for 20-odd years before he gets his companion Friday.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff in this section that I, I found a bit of a slog, if I'm honest. Um, admirable in a way. But a bit of a slog for a modern reader as well because it's mainly concentrated on him um, building shelter, him travelling back to his shipwrecked boat to to try and um, get back all the all the goods and chattels that he had on the on the boat. So gunpowder, rum, uh, tools to help him build his island. Um,
1: yes, and there everything is. Recorded uh-huh. with, in, with precision and detail. There's, there's a huge amount um, in this novel of accounting yes, and balancing things mm-hmm. in a spreadsheet.
0: Yeah. Uh, a metaphorical spreadsheet. Well,
1: actually, kind of a literal spreadsheet <laughs> where he's talking about the good <laughs> and the evil. Yeah. I love that. And in fact, um, I thought it was fascinating how he's sort of saying, you know, on one hand, I'm on the island. <laughs> On the other... <laughs> I'm not dead. Uh, yes, I alone <laughs> survived. Yeah. Um, but then right at the very end of it, you know, and he, he makes all these equivalences.
0: And even though he's, he's got very little on the island, there is a sense that the whole time he's there he's just accumulating things, accumulating, accumulating, mm. just through his own skills and ingenuity... As well, like does he? Re- I mean, he. I, I actually loved the bit where he discovered how to make pots and make baskets and all those kind of things. But then you just imagine his shelter being, <laughs> like he's like a hoarder, and he's probably got hundreds of pots that nobody uses in the back of his cave.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. One one of the things that is, you know, this solitude mm. um, means that he sort of displaces quite a lot of like certainly narrative energy but yeah. also um you know almost emotional investment because it's a matter of survival onto mm. object
0: yeah
1: um and uh, at the end of this spreadsheet where he's talking about uh, the good and the evil he says um in the evil column i have no soul to speak to or to relieve me mm. and he balances that with But God wonderfully sent the ship in near enough to the store, so that I have gotten out so many necessary things Mm. as will supply will either supply my wants or enable me to to supply myself even as long as I live. So there's equivalence between people and things. Yeah, there's a as being a way of sustaining yourself. Mm.
0: There's Um, a real battle in his soul, I suppose, going on between. his own spiritual renewal and conversion and in the materialism, the sort of practicalities and his materialistic view of because it's not even just about to survive like how to survive, like what I was saying earlier about all the pots and the baskets and all that kind of thing, he does he does more than enough to survive
1: Yes, and he begins to what, what he particularly wants to do is yeah. take pleasure in things yeah. so he's particularly interested in making baskets to transport grapes mm-hmm. and he wants the grapes so that he can have raisins and he calls <laughs> yeah. them my dainties and he takes <laughs> great pleasure in living as a Gourmand, yeah, basically. I know. I was kind of um, thinking,
0: does he is he not getting sick of raisins yet?
1: <laughs> well, he's very worried at the beginning that he might take sick from eating the grapes, and yeah. that's why he has raisins.
0: <laughs> there is something quite um, in those moments where he is like sort of detailing every single moment of his life, quite sort of putterish about about him, um, um, like his own the, the 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 sheer amount of detail that is so important to him but to the reader is maybe not as uh, exciting (laughs) and doesn't mean as much to us. like, right, you've made a pot, right, come on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, He he talks about being sort of all set up in his really quite elaborate um, homestead. Yeah, it's very impressive. As being surrounded by my wealth, Mm. which I think is interesting because um, he talks about... Finding gold in the ship yeah. and saying, "Ah, oh, drug, yeah. I have no use for you," but, but he then, takes it anyway. Yeah, he's
0: like, "Just in case."
1: <laughs> yeah, and and there's a co- and all through he is making an accounting of yeah. where his stock is at, mm-hmm. um, in terms of what's in England and what's in Brazil and what's with him and what he's invested. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's certainly quite a practical adventure story you mean know, this is not gapier travel
0: yeah <laughs> but you know after the the crisp clean prose of Muriel spark um that that sheer amount of detail did get a little bit wearing after a while mm. even in the most spectacular scenes as well you know like he fights cannibals and kills a lot of kills a lot of them and rescues Friday from the cannibals rescues um other uh, islanders for forums to keep him company later on as well there there is a lot of action and yet at the same time uh, when you're reading it you're you're like come on robinson get get keep going keep going he, he very much does not have the sense of making it a page turner it's yeah
1: but, and i think it, i think it is a bit odd because one of the things that's strange about it, it's not a very long book
0: no but it feels long <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why it became such a, a sort of a a book for children, Um, and the abridgment started almost as soon as the novel was published, Mm. and it was just you know condensed down, but uh, for some uses and some audiences but then also expanded and you know the philosophers of the late 18th mm. century uh, were obsessed with um interrogating yeah. the story of Robinson Crusoe mm. how man operates in a state of nature so I on one hand I think it's a very dense book mm. and on up, on the other yeah there's a sort of an accumulation of detail yeah. that I mean you could say that this is a sort of like metaphor of the novel as commodity um, in itself. Like it's full of things. Mm.
0: It's funny because you get, maybe you, with um, Defoe wanting it to seem like it's real mm. and true he probably thinks if I put this kind of detail in it, that'll give it a sense of its trueness yeah. rather than it just being a fictional story. Oh, definitely. And it's I found it a strange choice, therefore, that um, he then decided... Robinson Crusoe admits that he kept a journal. Yeah. And there's a section quite near the beginning where he gives a section of the journal, but he then chooses to tell the story retrospectively. Mm-hmm. And in the in the in the journal entries that you that you see, it's always just like tiny little details, like rained again, another day of rain. Yep. Got, got some grapes. You know, he isn't going into detail into in his journal at all, which shows the the I don't know what the character of Robinson Crusoe was thinking that that in the moment present first person narrative wasn't sufficient enough to get. To, to tell the story so he had to do it in the past tense after it had all happened and you get that in the Robinson's uh, in, Ro- in Robinson Spark Robinson as yeah. well and January Marlow also keeps a journal but doesn't actually present the journal no. to the reader either
1: yeah and just on the same subject of uh, before we start talking about narrative I think one of the things that Spark critiques in Robinson, her Robinson is um, this, or this sort of the object thing mm. um, in her, in in the man who has a suitcase full of amulets mm. you know these objects that are charged with significance and meaning mm-hmm. um and of course the guy is a snake oil salesman yeah and he's like selling faith and and what have you and you know she she just makes a, a joke out of that mm. um and it's very funny <laughs> yeah. very um, funny yeah um, and a bit sinister though yeah well. Well, yeah
0: yeah yeah though robinson's Robinson Crusoe's pretty dark as well, I think. Mm. (laughs) But yeah, so it seems like um, in Defoe, um, in Robinson Crusoe, would he be given something away of his character in the journal that he actually doesn't want us to see? And so therefore, is Robinson Crusoe actually one of the first instances of the unreliable narrator as well, which is a thoroughly postmodern um, uh, concept. Yes.
1: In so much as, like, the novel in itself is a sort of postmodern genre, right from the very beginning, yeah. right, <laughs> where it's talking about what's his, what's history and what's fiction. I certainly think that when he starts the journal, he and and he immediately rewrites.
0: Mm. Yeah,
1: In journal form something you have just read. Yeah, and you just think, oh yeah, we really are a retreading ground here. Mm. And he does add some more details. And
0: he constantly says all the way through it, "I have said this before. I have said this before. I have said this before." And you think, mm. well, why are you saying that again then? Mm. He also maybe reveals things that unknowingly that he doesn't want you to reveal. Yes, yeah. and, and so that's why you think, does Robinson, is Robinson Crusoe, a uh, uh, a part of Daniel Defoe's character or is Daniel Defoe satirising his character even before all the people that then subsequently satirised Robinson Defoe did too yeah. you know is Daniel Defoe in on the joke about Robinson Crusoe or is, is that too much of a modern reading?
1: I think he's in on the joke
0: yeah? Yeah. I mean what do you think of Robinson Crusoe as a character I mean I've said that already he's quite putter Yeah. but there's also you know there is a a grandness to mm. to him, like he's a, he's a thoroughly ambi- he starts off as a thoroughly ambitious man, and he tries to say that he, with his religious conversion that he is ashamed of that part of himself. Yeah. But the through the writing and the telling of the story, and the way he refers to you know his shelter as his castle and to himself as a king, he's quite a vainglorious um, character as well.
1: Yes, but he also thinks of himself as a prisoner. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things about a first-person narrative is that it's—I always find it claustrophobic because yeah. you end up spending too much time with one person, <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, that become you become mistrustful. Mm. Part of it uh, is that he reflects the sort of motion of. Um, you know something happening or him fearing something is going to happen and then him reflecting on it and then like justifying himself yeah. but then but then revising.
0: Mm. You know, he
1: does I think he revises his opinions. See I about think he things.
0: seems to and then at the last moment doesn't really you know he was always going to kill the cannibals, despite sort of saying, "Why should me why should I this man that I am, just this mirror man kill these people? He was always going to kill the cannibals, you know he was always going to take that gold, and he was all and 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 when he's you know browbeating himself for you know why did God do this to me? Why did God do this to me? The fact that these uh debates happen in his head so often shows how much he's oscillating between God, I hate God, and, oh man, I love God, and all that kind of thing. And when he... when But I think, yeah, I think that he produces. You know, when he... I think he
1: produces a kind of self-knowledge, though, that is... um I don't want to say humble, because I don't think it is. Yeah. But one of the things he says when he's terrified of the saboteurs, I think he says... When I'm or terrified of shipwreck, I mean it's the same thing. He says when I'm, when I'm not in danger, I don't think about God. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, he, I think that he is quite an astute, and and this is Defoe, I suppose. Yeah. An a, an astute observer of human nature and character. Yeah. And, um, I do think that there's a subtlety to it Mm. that you wouldn't necessarily well that makes this a novel yeah he is
0: more of an everyman than maybe robinson crusoe thinks he is like i get the impression that robinson crusoe thinks he's something special but actually he he is an everyman and defoe makes him an everyman but robinson crusoe doesn't quite know that he's an everyman yes yeah
1: yes that's certainly right. And I, you know, in the beginning, when they're talking about, they talk about exemplarity uh, in the preface, a lot of prose fiction and autobiography. I mean, this is the thing I already said, you know, history, this is a history. But um, the other non-fiction genre that feeds into the novel at this point is autobiography and sort of confession, yeah. spiritual mm-hmm. autobiography. Yeah. I suppose what I'm, when I'm saying that, You know, there's all this reflection on behaviour that comes directly from that. Mm, mm. Um, And it's just sort of woven in with this great story on the high seas. I think that Robinson has a consciousness of himself as a character as well. Right. So what do you make of his relationship with Man Friday?
0: Well, I mean, again, we are modern readers. Mm. And so reading Robinson Crusoe, you can't not see the problematic nature of a lot of it, particularly the way he endlessly refers to people as savages and and creatures and all that and he even refers to 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 Friday as that as well yeah. um despite him saying how he loves friday and as his, his, right. his constant companion and this is
1: prefigured in his relationship with the young sleigh uh sir oh. well the young boy uh jury yeah uh-huh um who he sells into indentured servitude... I know! ..and feels a bit of remorse about, but then thinks it's OK.
0: I know. there's. Yeah. I mean, there is a master-servant relationship between yeah. Robinson Crusoe and Friday, and he presents Friday as being completely OK with that. Yeah. Not only not being OK with that, but actually in some ways instigating cool. that um, relationship with the way that when Robinson Crusoe first rescues him, yeah. he puts his head underneath his foot right. to sort of say... You know I'm I am, I, am I, I I am subordinate to you
1: and also um, it's very didactic and mm, benevolent mm. yeah
0: and and one of the things' in the scene where he's talking about how much he admires the look of um Friday as well like he he talks about his great limbs and his strength and all that and his beautiful teeth as well Mm -hmm. which is really, you know, reminiscent of when you took slaves to market and, you know, you were checking their teeth to see how healthy they were. Well,
1: it's an accounting, Yeah, again. uh And it's like the physical, monetary that, the the value that is ascribed to the physical.
0: Yeah, and then he also says but he looked very European when he smiled. Right. Which is another way of saying, so in this way he becomes more acceptable to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. there. Um, it, is, it is one that sort of gets your hackles rising as, as a right. modern reader.
1: Well, precisely because mm. um, it's the only significant human relationship in the book yeah. I mean, this is astonishing for a novel because the novel is, is a romance
0: you know <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> romance? No, It's just the first romance not <laughs> <laughs> I suppose uh, Don Quilty was more of a romance than this one was. We are here in the wonderful home of Candia McWilliam, um, who's very kindly invited us in, so we can talk all things Robinson. Um, so Robinson is Muriel Spark's second novel, and like the 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 novel that we've been talking about previously, Robinson Crusoe, it's a castaway story. But I would say it's probably it's quite a different castaway story than the usual ones that you that that you that you get. Um, in, in comparison to Robinson Crusoe or Gulliver's Travels, you don't get much in Robinson about you know building a shelter foraging for food, all that kind of thing it's very much about the personal relationships between the people that survive in this plane crash, in this mysterious island in the Azores what is it about Robinson that did you choose to, to introduce Robinson for the centenary editions or um, it, it... it was given to me right
2: and I was uh, humbled I hadn't read it before
0: oh right so this was the first time you'd read the yes ah.
2: uh, and uh, I'm very glad to have been given it and I've um, suppressed my vulgar curiosity as to who's been given what actually
0: <laughs> um, because I
2: thought you know, it is a sublime question of dating mm.
0: um,
2: you know, yeah, who's I going to be chummed up with whom in the <laughs> earth of Dame
0: <laughs> <Muriel>. <laughs>
1: Yeah, swipe right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you were given Robinson, and um, what did you did you have any expectations when when it was given to you because of the nature of castaway novels and all that kind of I thing? I didn't
2: think I approached it at all through genre. I approached it as yet more of her, right. for whom I'm greedy, <laughs> and I, I was nothing but delighted and satisfied, and it. People say the difficult second novel. Yeah. There's, there's no trace of that. No, no. Um, but I didn't think that sort of thing applies to her anyway because she leapt. Her, her gift, she knew she had something within her head very soon in her mm-hmm. life, clearly. And she knew she was a poet mm-hmm. from the very first. And she came into flower uh, quite late on and fully... In command of of her gifts mm. and the idea of a castaway story is very useful to a novelist such as she is, because she does like enclosed societies. Mm. yeah,
0: that, it felt more like a, a closed room, a locked room uh, novel rather than a castaway novel, you know, one where yes,
1: January Marlowe is not really dealing with loneliness. Because in or, or complete isolation in the face of nature, Fair because there are it's a social situation because they're all in a room together at the same time, um nobody they don't know each other, yeah, so they're all trying to negotiate each other's backstories and motivations and what have you, which in itself is isolating
2: they're doing yeah. the thing we
1: do, which is write fictions
2: about one another, yeah mm. Mm-hmm attempting to make that square with evidence. Mm-hmm. January is such a fascinating name. It's a two-faced name. Yeah. And there she is, named for the month of the year in which she was born, uh, the heart of the dark part of the year, but also mm-hmm. named for, for Janus, the mm-hmm. two-faced god. Yeah. And she's always looking in two directions. One, she's conscious of things subspecie eternitatis, mm-hmm. and she's conscious of what's happening in real time. And we're writing the book too at the same time, yeah. because there's the urge to plot, which is very frequently frustrated by Muriel Spark. <laughs> we think we've uh, read some clues, and they are absolutely scarlet herrings.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's quite a slippery novel, Robinson. You th- you, 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 you're not quite sure where you're, where you're going with it, because... The characters themselves seem quite slippery and unknowable. A particularly January Joe, January (laughs) (laughs) Jones. January Marlowe. (laughs) I getting mixed up with Mad Men there. (laughs) It is
2: slippery. Um, Most of her novels are about uh, novels, Mm -hmm. uh, and yet not boring at all, let me make that point, Mm because many novels that are about novels and novelists are uh, dull, Mm -hmm. and hers are uh, sparkling, glistening. And uh, Robinson, she it doesn't rely on the usual uh, matters of uh, is one able to uh, do DIY
0: yeah.
2: or forage uh, <laughs> at all. Uh, it does rely on a uh, capacity to recognise truth when you bump into it. Mm. And that's very interesting because uh, January has that and yet she can shapeshift mm. so by pulling her face a certain way into the shape of another yeah. she can turn herself into another person which is what novelists do mm. but it isn't the face it's the imagination
0: Yeah, and, and f- She sees that in all the other characters as well, their face changes January, just for, for readers that haven't read Robinson yet his, um, she crash lands on a mysterious island called Robinson but she's not the only one, she crashes with two men Tom Wells and uh, Jimmy Waterford and the island is also inhabited by a very enigmatic man, um, Miles Mary Robinson and his um, child stroke servant stroke officially ward yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. I think Cro- it yeah. helps and, well, to think of
2: him uh, as a child, and possibly Ariel, as in Ariel and Prospero. Yes. Mm-hmm. There is definitely magic happening. And January takes some responsibility, but not in a claggily maternal way, yeah. for the small boy. For example, in order to amuse him, she teaches the blue cat,
1: Bluebell, yeah. uh, to play ping pong. <laughs> uh, That's sp- one of my favorite <laughs> moments in the novel because she muriel spark writes it as if this was the most natural thing to do and uh, as i learned from alan taylor she herself you know was a lover of animals yeah. and lived with all these cats and dogs initially it never occurred to me that you could teach a cat to play ping pong but anyway she goes into it and it's it, she's just very definite about how you would do it This is how you teach (laughs) a cat ping-pong. And you go down this journey with her, and then right at the end, she says, you might think that this was an incident, but it was not one to me. (laughs) And you've just been thinking, this is this perfectly crafted episode in which you're learning about the cat and animal intelligence and um, how to manipulate another being, and you're thinking how clever this is, and then she says, it was nothing. (laughs)
0: Well, she's very strange, January, about what constitutes an incident on the island mm. as well. Like It's, it's, it's kind of like she can't quite... Well, she tells us the story and then says, oh, but that was nothing, about quite a few of the things that happened in the island. So it makes you think well, why then are you choosing to tell us this story mm. if these incidents weren't the main ones? Because
2: there's something else going on yeah, yeah. at the same time. That really mm. is a very Janus face. Yeah. That so, um, the ostensible big plot changes aren't in fact the big plot changes which tend to be metaphysical. Perhaps we should describe some of the practicalities of the island. Its main crop is pomegranates, yeah. which I think is uh, very important. Um for reasons we can go into in a, in a second, but um the castaways they aren't castaways, are they? No. They're throw-outs from a burning plane yeah. uh the survivors and Robinson and Miguel and probably Bluebell the cat live on tinned goods, yeah which offends January's <laughs> sense of real reality,
0: yeah, I think there's an element of her that wants to sort of. You know, have the pastoral have, idea. Yeah, I have yeah. been in this. I've, I've been thrown into this situation, and now I'm eating tinned food. <laughs> mm.
2: But the island itself is sort of pleasingly, yeah, uh, a novelist's island. It's mm. it's a construct, mm. although we we do believe in it. I think, don't you?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I very much was plotting out their path to the um, the. Not the cesspool, what's it called? The The furnace. The the furnace, the the scion screaming furnace, and trying to work it myself where the tunnels (laughs) would come out and all that kind of thing.
2: The edges, the coasts of the uh, island may not be reached, save through passing through a red area Mm -hmm. called the furnace, unless through subterranean tunnels which really can only be accessed by Miguel. And is mm. that because he's a child and innocent?
0: And small. <laughs> and then, <yeah. laughs> Though January um, ends up going into the tunnel. She does on seven. her own. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, then yes,
1: bad things happen, I yeah, suppose, if you're not true. in the tunnels with your guiding spirit.
2: That's so, but what saves her, we can't actually name the thing that saves her, but it does relate to the word. Yeah. Mm. So what saves her is keeping close to the written word.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. We can't say more than that because otherwise it might spoil <laughs> one of the many surprises in this remarkable novel. Yeah. And there's um, the Robinson who owns the island. He enjoys a fortune which is derived from major scooters. Scooters. <laughs> Motor yeah. scooters. Very implausibly. <laughs> and uh, he is. A Catholic, but very down on the cult of the Virgin Mary mm. and the book plate in the front of his books, some of which he allows January to read, reads Num quam minus solus quam cum solus, which means never less alone than when alone, yeah. which is throwing us back onto the the power of the mind. Mm. And early on Muriel Spock has this extraordinary capacity to to render concrete metaphysical matters, including grace. Mm. And grace, for her, is very close to, I think, the practice of her art. I don't Mm. know if you feel that.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense, because with The Comforters and then with Robinson, she still is very much exploring her own version of Catholicism. She was a recent Catholic convert at the time, and um, and so a lot of these metaphysical questions arise because of that. She's it's like she's trying to work out what kind of Catholic she mm-hmm. is, and it does seem to come down to the, the her creation is the thing that that makes her understand God's creation or or something some, something along those lines. You know the way she ends the book at the very end when she talks about. Have has January have the memory of, you know. Sometimes I remember the island, and she and she, um, you know, I've got all these memories that I've not um, thought about for ages or put down on paper. But then I, I think about them sometimes, and then I remember all things are possible. All things are possible. Yeah.
2: It's and it's the the book ends with the most extraordinary bit of bravura writing. Yeah. Which reads a bit like the writings of Thomas Traherne. It's full of uh, a strong Scots ballad glamour. It names the colours that happen in ballads. Mm -hmm. White, gold, scarlet, blue-green. It's emblematic and it's also fully plausible and it's in the mind of Mm. a young woman who is sipping an espresso on Mm. the King's Road, (laughs) having been rescued from an island which is slowly sinking now that it is no longer of use to its creator, Muriel Mm -hmm. Spark.
0: But everything that she got from the island is still there in her her mind and her imagination to create whatever she wants to create. So I I think it's, in a way, it's kind of a little hymn to the act of writing and the act of imagining itself, which is, I think, quite closely bound up. They are. She's interested, isn't she, in
2: the... the, uh, You're right, the act of creating in the Prima mobile, and she is... I don't know why I'm coming up with all this sort of pedagogical mm-hmm. style, but in, <laughs> in God, and she who is the person who is making every aspect of this book, mm. yet it doesn't have the crampedness of certain forms of artific- artificer. You don't feel her placing it. It has mm. powerful, forward, intricate... Winding energies:
0: yeah that's i mean i've not read all of Spark yet, but you do <clears throat> definitely get a sense of her in complete control, but in a very unself-conscious unartificially arty way, which is what I most appreciate about about her work and her style and, and the way she she um, she writes her novels. I was wondering about
2: that uh, with reference to her complete work and her relatively late start and it is as though she's singing and uh, that relates I'm sure to her being a poet because you don't feel the the crampedness of a person with a very adept wardrobe of verbal (laughs) felicities She she understands herself to be able to
1: produce the condine word for the condine thought, Mm. and she can. Mm. I wonder if Robinson is one of the most expansive examples because of its setting, in the Comforters or then in the London novels or what have you. There's, I mean, particularly in the Comforters, I think, when she's thinking about um, religion and grace and what have you. There's, it's a little bit more compact, but in in Robinson, because the setting has these aspects of myth
0: and exoticism to, and, to it, yeah.
1: Um, whether that's all the more powerful in this one,
0: I know it's. Um, it, it feels very different to a lot. I mean, she she changes style that all the time, and you know, one of the things that you, what you learn when you read Muriel Spark is just how versatile she was. But this one, especially, feels really different. To, to to many of the ones that I've read so far um, because of its setting because of its slipperiness it, it feel there's a same um, i'm I'm not quite sure um, like it feels less muriel spark than a lot of other muriel spark books
2: as ever <laughs> with the uh, work of muriel spark she is incredibly funny yeah. at the same time as having uh, a strong grip on the four last things and the uh, the tragic view of life mm. and the odiousness of her brothers-in-law oh, yeah. Curly, the bookie <laughs> and the horrible self-righteous doctor who loathes women and yeah. is like Robinson, anti marian there's a marvellous bit at the end of the book where Uh, her family have understood her to have been killed in the plane crash and they rather grudgingly pick her up at the airport when she's (laughs) revealed not to have died and she notices that her sister is holding a handbag that is very strongly January's own, i.e. she's appropriated it and then her sister says, well, at least you could have managed not to die and testate. Next time, do please (laughs) arrange to have a will. And January, um, perhaps we should tell anyone who's listening this, January has a son
0: yeah. by
2: a classics master whom she married when she was barely out mm. of the nursery. Um, and the, the classics master tidily dies quite soon. There's a lot of tidying up, of course, as always with Muriel Spock. Um, but it leaves her with a son whom she clearly deeply loves and that is fascinating on lots of levels artistically to be able to suggest it in so few words well Evelyn Waugh is the only other person I can think of who does that relation so tenderly in Mm. The Handful of Dust in so very few words and also it's fascinating uh, that it's rather vulgar to mention the personal because Mrs. Spock did have a son, and he is called Robin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there aren't just the echoes of Robinson Crusoe, mm-hmm. and Swiss Family Robinson, um, and the rest of the Robinson art. There is the echo of her son's name.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, and it's, it's very... Like, a lot of people don't like to to sort of talk about the autobiographical element in, in novels but I think she definitely is a writer who, who brings that in, into her, her novels not in a very, um, you know, in a direct comparison kind of way but it's always there. It's interesting, I really deprecate
2: the idea that novels are simply people uh, shifting the the truth ometer a few degrees round in order to smuggle out (laughs) selfish, uh, narcissistic (laughs) truthlets. I I really think that that is uh, to misunderstand serious fiction. Mm. Equally, it is interesting that her capacity to use her own life Mm. does not addle anything in the uh, autonomous power of her books. No, Mm. not at all. Yeah. So she is clearly someone for whom nothing is ever wasted.
0: Yeah, yeah. You, she, I mean, if you look at her archive and the way she, 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 just burrows away everything for for future use. You can, you, you get the impression that she also does that with her own memories and her own life as well. It's particularly if you've if you've read um, curriculum vitae, she sort of kind of lays out. But that's fascinating
2: curriculum vitae, isn't it? Because She is um, offering a version, well, is one ever doing more than offering a version in an autobiography. But she's also protecting herself, Mm. uh, as she had every right to do, and she was correct in doing, because there were those who would wish to uh, eat her, Mm. as it were, or to be shareholders in her.
0: Mm. Yeah.
2: Uh, But because of her understanding of myth and her understanding that all closed societies bring myth about and start to generate their own myth, she is yet again doing more than one thing at once. Mm. So her novels tell a parallel history of the time Mm. and they tell their own story and they address the questions that absolutely fascinate her. What is the use of suffering? Uh, what is death? Uh, these are things which it's hard to address entertainingly. Mm, yeah. And she does mm. uh, uh, repeatedly. <laughs> and she gives you uh, some of her capacity to see clearly while you are reading her. And there is frequently an aftermath. Uh, which happens with all forceful artists. Mm -hmm. So you see the world in her terms, insofar as you're capable of it. Um, I mean, by you, I mean one, Mm i.e. I. Um, and Because I'm not saying that one could ever be uh, uh, privy to her gifts. Um, And you see the world in her terms, and that is an enormous present she gives yeah. she gives. She is a very generous writer mm. I, I quarrel with the idea that she's lapidary hard mm. sealed yeah. I, I think she's vigorous mm.
0: yeah.
2: uh, and alive and yeah. that she's not uh, labelling or putting yeah. um, cartoon bubbles with words in out of pe- people's mouths she is however making things concise, so they go into the blood fast. Mm. Mm. She That's aerates the blood it. fast.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like a bracing walk, <laughs> like the way the oxygen bubbles just you make your brains like... Oh, and
2: then you get the bends.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you too much all at once.
0: There's a lovely surreal quality to Robinson as well. Like we were talking about the cat playing ping pong... Earlier on, and you know the furnace that screams whenever you mm. you put like so. Even though there's that sort of crystal sharp um, element to 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 murals, right? there are always also these wonderful flights of fancy, which you know on an an island, an entirely imagine, imagined island, you can. Fling these things about, but I remember, like, and she, but she presents them as entirely plausible and real.
2: <laughs> well, nothing is less plausible than the actual.
0: Yeah,
2: and you know, really, um, and you think when people say, "Oh, look, this baby is going to meet a giraffe." Won't that be astonishing? It won't be astonishing because everything's astonishing to a baby. <laughs> you know, everything's new. It's simply the grid of what we expect, mm. and, and she. Uh, thrillingly, is capable of writing experience such that we really don't know what to expect mm. next. Yeah. And she confutes our expectations. All the time. All the time. In a very uh, invigorating way.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us for our first podcast of 2018. I think um, Robinson Crusoe and Robinson by Muriel Spark are a very good companion. Um, companions to each other. Absolutely. And I would recommend reading them both at the same time, one after the other.
1: Yeah, and also some of the interim Robinson ads.
0: Mm-hmm. There's so many more island stories that have come in the wake of Robinson Crusoe and um, all of them probably deal the, with the, the survival on an enclosed space in a very different way. Yeah. Um, I am unashamedly going to say that I much prefer Muriel Spark.
1: <laughs> I would also say, though, look out in 2019 for all round celebrations of the 300th anniversary of Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. Wow, yes. Which is really just astonishing.
0: So, thank you for joining us, and we shall be back next time. See you then.